0: Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Elisa Stolman, and this week's exchange is with Electric Indigo, an Austrian DJ whose work spans and surpasses the limits of techno. She worked at Berlin's hardwax Record Store in the 1990s, started her own label, and toured her decades, but she's only recently announced the release of her first full-length album, which is coming out on Mono Lake's Imbalanced Computer Music label in March. However, she's probably best known as the founder of Female Pressure, an international network of female, non-binary, and trans professionals in electronic music and digital arts. It has been a driving force in dance music's movement for gender equality since 1998, in which time much has changed for feminist activists. She recently came to the RA office in Berlin to discuss her perspective on the changing landscape of social justice in electronic music and the evolution of her own career. You can find the full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA exchange. The exchange with Electric Indigo is up next. Recording in Berlin today, as you're in town because you played at Bergheim this past weekend. Uh, so, looking at your schedule, it seems like you play here in Berlin more often, even than in your hometown, which is Vienna, right? Absolutely, yeah.
1: It has been like that for many years, and Berlin actually is kind of my second home for sure. Yeah.
0: Yes, I do think of you as someone who helped to create the the techno or dance music industry in berlin or at least played a a significant role in that thank you for saying that (laughs) is that is it because of the time you spent here in the 90s that you think you still have a lot of um connections here in in berlin even over vienna Absolutely, I'm totally sure that uh this
1: is the case the time- my time in Berlin when I lived here and particularly working for hardwork's uh record store from ninety three to ninety six totally coined me and really coined like my socialization in the techno scene or in the electronic music scene so in that time, I learned a lot and uh, also my attitude got solid then uh, and was very much influenced by the viewpoints that I learned from my colleagues at Hardwax. And I'm very sure about that, that this was extremely important for me uh, this time. And I don't know if I was able to somehow influence the scene here in Berlin maybe not that much but uh, it's it's more the other way around I think
0: <laughs> in what ways did it influence your attitudes or viewpoints
1: uh, well in 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 a way for example like what a good club should feel like the Pa. The sound is the most important thing in the club, and and not the the fancy furniture, for example, uh, or that it is. For me, it is just like I feel at home in adapted industrial places or adapted r- rough places, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, or like how important it is to to try things out to experiment with with venues actually uh, that there are possibilities even if maybe uh, limited to a certain period of time but that it is important for young or creative people uh, to have space where they can experiment and try out things uh, stuff like this yeah
0: were there particular clubs in berlin or even in germany in general that were particularly influential for you in that way?
1: Uh, for sure. Uh, there was, for example, this uh, small club called Elektro um, in Berlin, and uh, certainly also places like Tresor uh, or even even uh, Bunker. I don't mm. know if you're aware of that. <laughs> well, now it is, club. Um,
0: it's now Samlong Boros, an art space.
1: Mm. I don't even know, uh, but is it that like private uh, millionaires' yes. art space? Yeah. yeah so I've it's owned by
0: um, the Boros family who built their own apartment on the top of the bunker, and then now that you can do a two-hour walking tour through their art collection, which is a privately owned collection that they rotate out. I think it's every two years, but it's actually it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, what a history of that place, right? Other places in Germany that were very influential, certainly uh, Ultraschall in Munich and its mm-hmm. predecessor, the ultra world parties at Kulturstation, which is was actually th- these people like Upstart and the Disco B crew and DJ Hell, they were the first ones who ever booked me as a techno DJ so uh, i'm still very thankful for that and uh, so the the guys in munich were also very important to me
0: so then moving to berlin and to work at hardwax gives you sort of a built-in network when you get here yeah so what kind of people were in that network at the time and what doors did that open for you
1: the people were activists, artists uh, from the scene. So a lot of the DJs, not only from Berlin but also internationally, because everybody like came to Hardworks to buy records. It was like the best source of records. And you must imagine that um twenty-five or thirty years ago the distribution of records worked very differently from how it does uh now nowadays. In my case, I could notice that a lot of the records that were really, like, hot, uh, they didn't ever come to Vienna. And if they did, maybe one or two copies one year later, then it, they were available uh, at Hardworks record store. And this was the case for, for many people. So everyone who traveled through, uh, who came to Berlin, who was a DJ kind of had to come to Hardwax too, because otherwise it would be like a big chance missed out, you know.
0: What was it like to come to Hardwax between 1993 and 1996, and what was it like to work there?
1: Yeah, I actually wrote an article for Groove some years ago about that, like a description how it was to work at Hardwax. It was quite intense, especially on uh, Fridays and Saturdays, because... Particularly on Fridays, it was fun because Friday was the day a lot of deliveries came into the store. So the new stuff that everybody was really keen to have uh, arrived. And the store was totally packed. It was at a different uh, location in at that time. And also in Kreuzberg, but a much smaller store. It was completely packed. And... Behind the counter, there was usually DJ Rock uh, unpacking the parcels. So everyone watched, tried to see what he is like uh, taking out of the pack parcel, and then he would put on the records and on the on the open speakers in the, in the store, and he would skip through the records and he would say like his verdict pretty much within, I don't know, at least uh, maximum 30 seconds. And he would say words like brett, which means uh, board, wooden board. Uh, and that is like was like a slang used for really like heavy, hot tunes that are a total burner on the, on the floor. Uh, and as soon as he said something like brett, <laughs> All the hands would rise would go up in the air like everybody wanted to have the the record and usually these records first came only into like 1 to 3 copies because a lot of times uh these were sort of like tests uh whether you know we could sell it in the store or not so uh when it was a very good one um There were not many copies available and only, like, the privileged, uh, very important customers would get them. And very, like, regular customers, important DJs, like, had their little slot in the backside of the desk. And uh, it was super hard to to get one of these, like, Brett records uh. And then, for example, me as a customer, uh, when I didn't work there yet, I I developed like a quite useful strategy. I was not concentrating on on rock, uh, not trying to make eye contact with like the the main uh, buyer seller there, but with another one who other people did not pay potentially so much attention to, James. So I tried to establish a good relationship with James (laughs) through eye contact. (laughs) And then I got really lucky a lot of times that uh, a very popular record where very few copies were available, Um, this like unknown DJ from Vienna (laughs) could buy. Uh, That was really fun, you know, to... So it it was like a... Maybe one can imagine I don't know a thrilling auction or something. uh, Except that you know you would not bid, uh, but everything else it was really like exciting to be there and to. You had no other chance to listen to the to the newest stuff than there after the unpacking, and later when I worked there, uh, of course I had there were some there was another possibility to listen very early to some records not to every uh, but to to some key records uh, over the phone of course that's a very limited uh, quality and it's very hard to judge a record uh, after listening for a few seconds on, on over the phone speaker but there was no other way. <laughs> so either like uh, shipping the actual physical record, or the distribution company would play something on the uh, turntable there, and you would listen to it on, on the phone and then say, Okay, I yeah, buy 20, or no, I'll try three copies at first only, and then we see, and maybe we order later more. Yeah.
0: So was your primary position there as a buyer or did you also work behind the counter? What were your duties?
1: The first duty, as I said, was this holiday replacement. I was just uh, packing parcels and I'm really good at packing parcels. They become very neat and I have a real talent for that. So. <laughs> I can do very pretty uh, birthday presents, for example. Anyhow, so I proved myself doing these uh, mail order packages. And then I started to uh, work uh, behind the counter and sold records. And after a while, I proceeded and i became responsible i was buying all the european distributing uh, distributors and uh, labels so uh, i was lucky i could for example buy the whole backstock from secure records Mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that so that that was great and hardwakes is is a big store, uh, a very highly specialized store, with the means to create, or also the aim uh, to create a great, a great backstock of great records. This position was somehow grand. I didn't have to you know think of every single penny but I could say okay if we don't sell it now this record is good we will sell it in 5 years you know and that's some sort of uh, extreme luxury for a record store I think so not many stores were able to work in this kind of way foreseeing into the future <laughs>
0: I do have one other, I would like to introduce a theme here that we'll, we'll come back to, but I maybe other listeners are wondering too, if you were the first woman to work at Hardwax? No, I wasn't. Uh, because Hardwax existed since 89,
1: and I started to work there in 93, so there are at least like two years that I didn't know Hardwax, so... I don't know. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that Mark Ernesto's wife, Edsco, she worked there probably from the beginning. And she was not very often seen from a customer's point of view, uh, but she she did all the U.S. house labels buying. So she is a total expert in U.S. house and garage and disco during my time there was always Ed School, and then i th- either almost at the same time or a little bit later only came mo who is now my booking agent mo Lohschelder, who uh-huh. who also runs uh, ran Electro. Uh-huh. Uh, Really? Yeah. So she was my colleague there, and then uh, was then came Cora S, who also was a DJ. I think she might still be a DJ. She worked there. uh, Maybe she started when I stopped working there. So I was not the only woman. No.
0: I did want to get a little of your background before Berlin as well. So you were living in Vienna before you moved to Berlin to work at Hardwax. And if you had already at that time been asked to host DJ Hell at your apartment, I'm gathering that you were already involved in the music scene in Vienna. So can you tell me a little about your involvement um, pre-Berlin in the Austrian music scene?
1: Um, I started to DJ in 89 and I started as a a uh, funk, soul, jazz, hip-hop DJ. So I was kind of uh, rooted in the so-called black music scene in Vienna. There was also a record store, Black Market, where I bought a lot of my records. There was a club, uh, a Monday evening club, called Soul Seduction, where I liked to go to dance. And when I started as a DJ, I started in... a small bar uh, that had like two turntables, belt-driven turntables, so no proper Mm -hmm. mixing DJ equipment. Uh, And this bar was frequented um, mostly by artists or art students and that was pretty much my background, my social background. I also started did not really study but I, I was at the Academy of Applied Arts uh for for maybe half a year or so and then I decided it was not the right thing for me. Uh but most of my friends were actually art students. So this the whole art scene in Vienna is or fine art scene is is kind of was somehow my background there. Then I started to slowly incorporate more electronic tracks and nobody of the people who were hosting me uh, before, like that small bar or some occasional other parties, none of them liked it. I was also working for the uh, Austrian Broadcasting Corporation. I did radio features actually also about fine arts uh, but then I started to also do something about electronic music I did a I think I was a legendary interview of uh, 91 of underground resistance with three uh, original members with uh, Mike Banks and Jeff Mills and Robert
0: Hood And that was for the program D Music Box?
1: Yes. Music Box was absolutely legendary. And pretty much anyone who is somehow doing something in culture or media... And maybe of the age of 40 plus has worked at the music box. is quite funny.
0: It's a long-running program as well, it right? It was a long-running program, right? Since the 60s or so. I think so, yes. yes. So did you also consider yourself through your work for the radio show somewhat of a journalist as well at that time?
1: Uh, no, I was just trying things out. I was never like imagining imagining, sorry for uh, weird English here, or weird pronunciation, that I would become a journalist or a proper journalist. I was just, you know, trying this a little bit and that a little bit, study here a bit and there a bit. I have a quite wide range of uh, started studies that I never finished uh, with quite wide range of interests <laughs> that i pursued a little bit but never got really like totally deep into and the radio work was amongst it but i can vividly remember for example uh, cutting interviews on real to real tape and uh, that is some kind of occupation that you know rings a bell when i do for example granular synthesis now i no, that sounds a bit like far off, but for me it isn't. So there is some sort of like threat or the theme that goes through a lot of seemingly extremely diverse uh, occupations that I had. Anyhow, nobody in Vienna liked my new passion for electronic music and... That was another reason why I knew it was time to go somewhere else or see some other like possibility. Look for some other possibilities where people share my interest. In Vienna at that time, a lot of people thought techno was German fascist music, for example, even though you know there were like the the first. DJ, uh, who was also working at that uh, already mentioned black market record store in Vienna, DJ Gebel, he uh, was the first one to introduce me to DJ Rush and Underground Resistance. So uh, there were some people in Vienna who knew exactly uh, what was coming, uh, but a lot of other people had really like, they, they kind of hated that sound. It was too machine-like or something for them.
0: So it sounds like 1993 then was was a breakthrough year for you, not only in, in following your fate and moving to Berlin or fo- going with the, the flow and moving to Berlin. Um, it was also the year you started to release your own music. Right. So in 1993, Skyway, no headroom came out on experimental so by that point how long had you been making music how did you start making your own music was it always techno
1: yes definitely it was always techno and i did make some earlier attempts i think i can't even remember properly but i uh in, in Vienna and I for a very long time I didn't have my own equipment so I was for quite many years always working with other producers in their studios and I did have some experiences comparable to this with other people in Vienna before that but that didn't lead to anything and uh Yeah, that experimental record I made with Patrick Pulsinger and Adam Tunakan and they had the 909 and the 303 (laughs) that uh, I used on this record. And the whole thing came about um, because I DJed at Limelight and I stayed... In New York. In New York, yeah. And I stayed there for a couple of weeks and at the same time Patrick Pulsinger and another uh Viennese techno producer from back in the days, Helmut Wolfgruber. They were staying, I think, for several months, maybe three months or so in New York. So I was staying with them uh for a week or two, and we were they already uh, got friends with Ape to Key, and so we were just hanging around limelight and the I don't know. Are you familiar with Brand X?
0: No. No.
1: Brand X was a fax, techno fax magazine mm. by DJ Moneypenny, who is another like woman in the scene from very early times. And Penny was not only a DJ, but she was kind of a journalist and she f- ran this uh, weird format of a fax magazine, you know, in the early 90s we used fax machines <laughs> not very popular anymore unfortunately because i kind of like it i sometimes think so it's, you... it's a safe form of communication compared to email or phone calls
0: <laughs> so you mean that by fax magazine she would send uh you would have it printed out and faxed. yes wherever you are
1: Yeah. Okay. So uh, she sat in her office and she compiled articles. She wrote articles about, uh, also a lot about Chicago and Detroit and New York uh, techno and house scene and uh also in her office you would you would meet people like that's where i met uh Josh Wink for example they would just like sit there or Damon Wild and Damon Wild i also met him there uh in this like limelight uh, palladium uh, cloud because the office i think both of money penny and limelight was in, in the basement below palladium club so I went there with Patrick Puzzinger and Abe K and we met Money Penny, and uh, we met Damon Wild and Josh Wink, and you would just run into them there in this like really small <laughs> basement office. And so she was compiling uh, her articles, and then she would f- fax it to a fax list, and everybody who who had this uh, who subscribed the magazine would get it. At, regularly as a as a fax.
0: Well, I did want to talk about the the years after the um you first were in Berlin because uh there was some particularly interesting developments in your life and career at that time. I'm referring of course to founding the network Female Pressure in 1998. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what Female Pressure is or what what it was at the time in 1998
1: it has been already like nine years that I was a DJ b- back then uh, and I was already already had been touring a lot uh, since 93 so there are like five years of touring as a DJ uh, and the during all these years I experienced just too many times that people were surprised or astonished uh, or they didn't they they were ignorant about the fact that there are female DJs or female artists. So I had a lot of comments and some were like maybe even meant in a nice way but still uh, really (laughs) annoying like for a woman you're very good and you know we all you all know this stuff and yeah so but it was not only these comments and uh, the ignorance but it it was also that my reaction usually was in the middle of the night either before a dj set or after a dj set to name a few of my female colleagues because a lot of times people said oh there are so few and ah oh, there is only you and then they would come up with the most popular uh, name at a s- specific time, uh, so back in the days that was maybe Marusha, or a, a little bit later, uh, it might have been Miss Kitten or an alien. Uh, depending where you go, different name nowadays. Maybe it's Nina Kravitz, or uh, yeah, that changes uh, over time, and uh, it changes depending on the the geographic location you're at but usually like forgot about so many others. And so I started to list names and then they were like, oh yeah, I didn't think of her. And oh yes, you're right. And ah, really? And of course this uh, list, this oral list was always like completely insufficient. First of all, because at 100 or 110 dB, It's it's like not the ideal uh, opportunity to think and discuss. Second, late at night at three a.m. Neither. Third, like uh, trying to concentrate on a set or having like just played. Neither. So uh, at some point I said, okay, I need to write this down and I need to collect names and it was also becoming like since since i don't know 95 it was becoming so clear that the internet is a media of the future so i thought okay i i need to i need some reference i need something i can these i can refer these people to uh that they can access independently from time and location it became really clear that what is needed is a database with all these names and the database, because it it needs to be searched. A list is is insufficient somehow because the list is extremely clumsy. But if you're looking for something specific, you need to be able to search for uh, some criteria. Yeah. So that is that was the idea for an online database. And it started with, you know, collecting names and contact addresses. And in the first template I made for a new set of data uh there is also still fax number (laughs) in the template Mm. that changed of course um
0: so at first you were manually collecting this all yourself or did you also work with other people Uh,
1: of course i worked with other people i was uh, asking my friends like Essit maria was in there and from the beginning and uh some other people like eva Casal, for example from berlin uh i think jennifer cadini was also extremely early like involved in female pressure Uh, i was asking then do you think it's a good idea to create this and uh, like everybody everyone said yes because every every single dj i ever spoke to about this made the same uh experiences with with the comments and with the questions and with the ignorance and uh, maybe this has changed a little bit now and so it's not so unusual anymore but it certainly still was 20 years ago uh and they helped me and they we they sent me like some information and uh yeah i put everything together and then it was the next difficulty was not only to collect data but to create an online database and that actually took some while until uh, there was a first version and that was just some guy from the it community that i was somehow connected with at that time and but he uh, was not so much into open source so i did not have like any access to any of the source code and it was extremely clumsy there was no way to to for me to administrate it directly and there was no interface so every time i wanted to add like new data i had to ask him if he could do this in his spare time and he was of course not really like super into the project itself so it it was totally clear okay i need to collaborate with with a woman i want to have it open source and yeah i need an administrative interface of course so so i can manage the content of the of the database and that only uh, was realized i think we were able to realize it in maybe two thousand or so, so it or maybe even a bit later. And the my partner, the one who programmed the the MySQL database, is Andrea Maya, and I was really happy that that I met her and we were put in touch by some people from my internet service provider at that time. So Andrea, she is an artist herself, uh, not music making, but more like media art artist and uh, open source expert. So she was really ideal in collaborating with me on the on the database itself.
0: It sounds like at the beginning, female pressure was founded as a response to questions from men to women. And that maybe at first there was then a narrow definition of who would be involved, who would be part of that response. So if they say, why aren't there more female techno DJs, then it would be female techno DJs involved in female pressure.
1: Um, It was not limited to techno, but electronic music. And and it was not only DJs, uh, but also producers, of course, teachers and producers and visual artists from the beginning okay because like the the whole visual part for me is has been like absolutely important from the beginning of electronic music and club culture as i know it and i you know, I saw it or learned it in Berlin, for example. So not only like the VJ thing in the club, but also the flyers and the graphic design and the cover artwork, mm-hmm. etc. So visual artists have been part from day zero of uh, female pressure. Okay,
0: yes. I asked because I know that now female pressure is, is not limited to DJs and producers or even just... Um just dance music, but I guess electronic music is a more general term anyway.
1: And that was also from the beginning because I was, for example, really eager to include Olga Neuwirth just to to make this very clear that it's not only about dance music, but electronic music in general. And Olga Neuwirth is, yeah, the female Austrian uh, composer of contemporary not classical but neue musik new mm-hmm. music so the composer thing also was very early part of female pressure
0: what is female pressure today how has it developed how many women are involved or listed
1: uh listed at the moment i think it's it's uh 2150 approximately from 74 countries so it's quite widespread geographically but three quarters of of the listed artists live in europe so it's very european centered then the next biggest part uh, if i remember correctly maybe about almost 20 percent is north america so you see the northern hemisphere is totally overrepresented and uh or let's say the western world as well and i guess that comes from the history of the whole thing being connected to me or to me and a few like founding uh, members um it's it's like a slow but steady growth and i think that has to do that there is individual contact with every member listed uh for every uh, artist listed in the database and as the usual procedure is like that somebody has to send like a short email saying like i want to become a member or i want to be listed in the database and i answer this email with with like a relatively long explanation of what female pressure is because a lot of times there have been misunderstandings for example artists think or expect that female pressure is a booking agency and once they are a member they will get regular bookings that's what they expect and of course it isn't mm. <laughs> that's not my job <laughs> i'm not finding uh, gigs for 2200 uh, artists uh, all over the place so uh, I explain what female pressure is and what it is not, and then I ask a set of questions. So it's it's like question: What is your artist name? <laughs> I don't know what name do you want to be listed, or do you want to have your email address accessible through uh, the entry uh, or what style? So I set up the uh, entry in the database, and then I send a uh, login information so there needs to be initial communication and that's very different to social media for example where you can create your own login and you're responsible for uh your profile alone and you you never like communicate with a real person and i think this like individual communication or personal communication is is one of the reasons why the growth is not as fast as it maybe could be. I don't know. There are actually a lot of people who never answered this like long email that I first sent.
0: Yeah. Mm. Female pressure was founded with a specific purpose in 1998. I'm wondering how that may have changed, I think that purpose probably remains the same, but that there are more purposes to female pressure now and more functions to it. So what do you see now as the um, overarching goals or purposes of the network?
1: I think the uh, female pressure is uh, first and foremost a tool that can be used in quite a lot of different ways so it's a tool for representation in the sense uh, or for raising visibility in the sense to fight the ignorance that i mentioned before Uh, but it is also a tool for to realize uh, special projects special projects uh, that uh, emerge through usually through discussions on our uh, mailing list where only members are subscribed. Good examples are uh, the fact survey that Mm -hmm. we realized uh, three times already uh, where we analyze uh, gender quota on festival lineups. Uh, Another uh, example would be the compilation we did for the women of uh, Rojava in Syria. Another example would be the Tumblr uh, from that Antje Kreyer made in two thousand fifteen, where she collected photos of women in the, in their uh, female identifying people in their studios because apparently there is people are having a hard time imagining women with electronic equipment. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there there are. Uh, several special projects that we were able to realize and you, all these special projects are represented on the website by these little round logos that you can find. These activities became more frequent or have become more frequent in since 2013 when we did the first facts survey that was had quite a big media impact and actually still has some resonance, yeah.
0: The the first FACTS survey seemed to me like a clear moment when female pressure started to engage in activism, when I would consider what it was before. Its use as a database was in organizing. Um, can you first just describe what the FACTS survey is, how it started, what and what uh, the results have been? In
1: 2013, there was a similar debate to the MeToo hashtag in the German-speaking countries. Uh, My memory fails uh, at the moment, so I can't remember the hashtag. But it was a, a German journalist who really got fed up with sexual assault and uh, there was also like a politician uh, who was uh, molested by another politician in Germany and so this this huge wave, very similar to Me Too uh, emerged in in 2013 in Germany and Austria and I think also Switzerland so uh, women uh, kind of publicly confessed or or reported that they were victims of sexual assault. And in the course of this huge debate in the beginning of 2013, uh, I think it was Gudrun Gut who first asked, uh, should we as female pressure rea- react to that? Or she was asking about the... Uh, you know that we had a mailing list discussion about uh, sexism in the industry, basically, and so it moved a bit away from that uh, theme of sexual harassment to a more general sexism dis- debate. We repeatedly had discussions like on a ma- mailing list, which you can. Uh, yeah which is like a closed circle even though there are like 1000 almost 1000 subscribers but it's still it's like only the female pressure members are subscribed there was repeated repeatedly a discussion uh like oh again at this festival there's only two female uh, artists booked or so so this kind of these kind of uh topics merged here uh, in the beginning of 2013 and then if i remember correctly i was the one who said well how many how many other really like when when someone complained oh again and they never book enough females uh, etc and i was like what are the actual numbers and nobody knew and i said okay i think it would be interesting <laughs> to to really have some concrete numbers and to to know what we are talking about and to know what we are complaining about and emails flooded in and then we needed to to think of a way uh, how to process them and so we created like an, a colleague of ours created the wordpress that we are still using so the first one uh the first factory was was just you know you know listing uh the data unverified data that was sent in as a like festival name uh, number of female acts, number of male acts, number of mixed acts and the link to the festival I think uh, so this can be still be found online and then we uh, at the for International Women's Day 2013 we added up all the numbers and uh, uh, figured out the percentages and the averages and uh, made some graphic design for it and uh Presented it, released it together with with this uh, press release in that has been like uh, written in I think nine different languages, which also represents like the many voices of female pressure and yeah. So we released this press release and the numbers on eighth of March two thousand thirteen, and that. What were the results? Uh, I think the results were in general that ten percent is already above average. Mm-hmm. If you also uh, count the all female festivals in, if you leave them out to just you, you know to only count normal festivals, under parenthesis, mm-hmm. uh, it 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 was like nine percent or something, and. This has definitely changed, but you must see it's, it's not like a scientific <laughs> survey, but it was rather like a very chaotic grassroots uh, activism. And the latest survey that we did in 2017 is definitely the most reliable and the most professional and also the most comprehensive one Uh, we counted i think of almost 220 festival editions of two and a half years and uh, we found out that the percentages changed and we could also since we've been doing it since 2013 we could also have a look over the years and compare Uh, we had we have some festivals, I think five festivals, where we counted like the lineups from five consecutive years and we could see how the percentage, the quota uh, evolved or the percentages of FEMA acts the so you noticed evolve. with
0: particular festivals that after the fact survey started to be published in 2013, that specific festivals started to book more female and female-identified acts? Uh, yes, we
1: could notice that. In in particular and with certainty, uh, we know that this was the case for CTM festival. Uh, With other festivals, we don't have internal confirmation, so to say. So
0: we don't know You mean that CTM told you because of your survey, we made this a priority? Yes. Okay. Um, I have definitely noticed over the past few years that this has become a bigger topic of conversation in general. Um, I would like to present you with some of the backlash arguments or criticisms that i've heard of this but not before i ask when you started to notice that these questions of sexism in electronic music started to become more frequent happen among more people and so on became more of a mainstream topic
1: well from my perspective which is not objective <laughs> it that was in 2013 with our first fact survey mm-hmm. but uh on the other hand you know it's interesting that uh during the discussion uh also people were posting covers from not dj mag but another like accelerate magazine accelerator yeah, or something or from or the 90s.
0: Accelerator would have been in the 90s. Saying,
1: like, portraying, for example, Heather Hart. She was on the on a DJ from New York that you might not know anymore nowadays. She was like the cover uh, of that very popular magazine uh, in the 1990s. And uh, the line said um, something like the future is female or something, you know? So it there there are always these it it's like a there are these phases of uh, where, when the topic becomes a bit more popular or uh, and then then it, it disappears again and we talk about other things and then it reappears with the same arguments <laughs> with the same discussions uh but i think this time it seems to stay More and to be a bit more general and a bit more accepted in a way. Uh, Or maybe simply more hip. So people can can give themselves a progressive image or something?
0: Right. So that's one of the backlash criticisms. People criticize DJs and producers who vocally support social justice or progressive politics, um, that they're using activism to give themselves an extra hook or a marketing edge over other DJs, which allows them them being women and female identified people and people of color to excel beyond what's justified for their skill talent and experience mm.
1: that's a quite unfair <laughs> assumption i wonder how that can be proved a recurring statement that not only i made over the years also like more than 20 years ago was that every new newcomer dj needs to profile her or himself. Uh, so to somehow stand out of the grey mass mm-hmm. <laughs> of newcomer artists in electronic music or newcomer DJs. And uh, of course that I had and I always said this clearly and uh without any like bad feelings can also be an advantage to be female in a male dominated field of course just because it's it's easier to uh remember like that one <laughs> female dj in when everybody else is is male um uh, so there always have been some advantages of of having some uh traits that others don't have you know but this assumption that people speak out for social justice just to become more famous or more popular i think it's just unfair and uh, it's not right because at the same time like a lot of other uh, of unpleasant effects exist for example in the in the realms of New music of cl- classical music. Uh, there is this famous international summer courses of new music, you might have heard of in Darmstadt, and uh, they were founded in after World War Two uh, by composers like and involving composers like Pierre Boulez and John Cage and. Karlheinz Stockhausen, so the really big names of serious contemporary uh, music. The summer courses have an excellent archive, and the, this archive is since uh, two years ago in the process of being digitized. And there uh, is a relatively young female composer involved in this archival work. Uh, She's she's a great composer. Her name is Ashley Fuer, and Ashley Fuer uh, initiated a movement one can almost say called uh, gender relations in new music. Grinnem, <laughs> mm-hmm. Ashley Fuer presented her findings uh, from going through the archive and from analyzing the the archive that contains like photographies, uh, scores, little notes from what has been worked there in Darmstadt over 70 years. And she presented numbers. She did something similar like Female Pressure did with the festival lineups. And then was also confronted with with, like the, the troubles she was afraid to get into by doing this, by doing something that is not her uh, actual work which is composing music but by going like on this kind of meta level and analyzing the conditions under which she and all the other composers work and she was actually warned she said uh, by her colleagues and they said like you don't want to be that girl And that is like the typical role of the feminist (laughs) that is not usually uh, or many times or has been at least in the past many times not the role of the most popular girl. You know, the most popular woman is the woman who is. Uh, of course, very ten- talented, uh, but also good looking and <laughs> uh, sexy and attractive and uh, plays along the usual lines. So to nowadays uh, claim that uh, being openly feminist is, uh, is certainly only an asset is simply simply wrong it's not true i think you know we are still not in a in a world of equal rights and we have not arrived there and there are, i think it's it can be maybe for a certain uh in certain circles uh you will have like a good image if you out yourself as a feminist but on a on a general level i think uh, it's hard to tell if it's an advantage or or maybe rather a disadvantage. I know a lot of artists, for example, who, or not a lot, yeah, but I know some artists who don't want to be affiliated with female pressure and I have the feeling that it is also because they don't want to be associated with feminism or they, you know... They're saying like oh, I have my own connections and I do it. I rather do it my own way. So to show solidarity and to uh, openly state or call for social justice is certainly hip with some people, but it's definitely, especially in this in this uh, in our political climate of uh, repression or or, uh, backlash to to right-wing conservative values, it's certainly not a general advantage. And I think it's quite short-sighted or dumb to state this or to to say it.
0: A lot of these criticisms that I hear do seem to set up a quote-unquote right way for someone to promote themselves, which is something that the speaker made up that no one really agreed on. There's not an official right way to promote yourself and make it as a DJ. And so then this standard that the speaker made up is then used against specific people, which are invariably women, female-identified people, and people of color, um, to to show why they are doing it the wrong way and why they do not deserve what they're asking for, which is a seat at the table um uh, the opportunity to play whatever festival just like everyone else or depending on your outlook um equal opportunity or equal outcome depending on your view Um, I I do wonder, though, when you told me about the, the composer who was told not to be that girl, if you perceived in your own career that your association with female pressure ever overshadowed, like, were you known more as the woman who founded female pressure than Electric Indigo DJ and producer
1: to a certain extent certainly yes and uh there were like several times uh during my career when I thought oh no not again a female pressure interview uh i also want some uh, interviews that are about um my work <laughs> as well, we'll a as a musician a <laughs> um but I'm I'm never you know if I were afraid of like a backlash that could occur to me because of uh, feminist work I wouldn't do what I've been doing for so long you know I don't I I, I don't care mm. uh I only know of one concrete case where uh someone involved into the organization told me it's it's kind of impossible to to get you a booking there because they say ah, that's feminist mm. uh, female pressure. Mm. So there's only one where I know it has been a disadvantage for me, only one case. And this has been resolved. <laughs> uh but I suspect or I think there could be yes of course you know i'm more sympathetic to some people than i am to other people so but in in general i think this goes for every kind of profile that you have you know you're more you're rather you cannot be friends with everyone in the scene it doesn't make sense either so i've rather uh i'm rather like surrounded by people who share like similar values Mm -hmm. than by people who like oppose them and think are by pure sexist. Of course not, you know, I don't want to be booked at the sexist festival.
0: (laughs) I'd like to talk a little about your new album, which is also perhaps the occasion of this interview, why we're doing it now and not three years ago or whenever at any other time so can you tell me about um the album when it's coming out how you worked on it if there what was your process or concepts that informed it and so on
1: yeah the album has actually a very long story and uh it's, it's my first solo album and that comes at an extremely late point in my career. I'm aware of that. The, we finally have an, uh, a release date. The official release date is 16th of March 2018. And it's coming out on Imbalance Computer Music. And I'm quite happy about this label because I think it really fits the the music itself. The material I used for this album has been evolved or has been evolving uh, or I developed the material over I would say the past six years or so. So uh, a lot of uh, past projects went into into the album and even though i'm not releasing a lot i make a lot of music that does usually does not come out that is performed as concerts and i started with this concert thing in the avant-garde new music scene about 15 years ago already and slowly like step by step uh Got more active in this scene as well. And so some of these concert projects, a particular one from uh, 2012 called Chiffre, and uh, another one called Barry Duffman that was presented at Wien Modern, a a festival for new music in in Vienna, and uh, some other. past projects also like morpheme parts of these sounds and in some cases even like uh, two tracks or one track were are now part of the album so it's like a a view on my preferred technique of uh, processing Specific samples, and that, that that's a kind of work that I started to create for that chiffre project in two thousand twelve, when I had a like a very conceptual approach uh, to the piece, and I used the basic raw material for it were numbers, the recordings of people counting from zero to 20 and I use then from uh, zero to 15 only and I made a, a, a call on uh, my on Facebook and uh, on the mailing list please send me recordings of you uh, counting from zero to 20 in your mother tongue or in a dialect uh that you're very familiar with and uh I got a lot of different recordings in very different qualities and that was the basic only basic raw material mm-hmm. for that piece and this is when I started with uh granular synthesis and the processing of um, material that is not musical in a, in a narrow sense uh and make music out of that
0: Can you describe the process of granular synthesis and how you used it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that could take another like five hours (laughs) if we go into depth. Uh, But uh, basically granular synthesis, well, I recommend uh, looking it up. There are very good Wikipedia articles about it as well. But uh, you take like uh, very short samples of audio material, uh, which are called grains. Typically, well, there there is a a quite relatively large range, but let's say typically they're about like 50 milliseconds or 150 milliseconds. So you can't really recognize the one grain. But uh, granular synthesis uh, divides audio samples in very small parts called grains, rearranges them to create some other musical content or sound so it's a sort of sound synthesis that has been developed predominantly during the 1980s and refined since then and it's it's uh, very much bound to the digital Domain. Uh, It has been done before or comparable things in the analog domain using tapes and splicing tapes into super short uh, bits and uh, pasting them together to create some completely different sound. Uh, But nowadays, and the important developments have all been connected with computers and computers capacities so i use um like my fa- favorite synthesizer for granular synthesis is actually a, a free max for life device called granulator uh created by robert henke so who is also the owner of the label where the album comes out so i think that uh, yeah that makes a lot of sense and there is like a circle closed yes,
0: full circle mm-hmm. so as a a final question then the album title is 511593 mm-hmm. is that uh related to the process of granular synthesis and the raw material of the people counting
1: not at all but of course uh, the well uh not really uh let's say not really uh the title i had difficulties with the title because there is You know, I don't want to convey messages. Uh, That's not my thing. Uh, There is a lot of attitude in my music and there is a lot of attitude in my artistic work or identity, but it's not, it cannot be boiled down to a simple short message. And album title, I thought, actually, I really don't care what the album title is because there is no like message i want to tell so but on the other side i always like numbers i have uh, that's also why i start to uh, create databases and long lists because i'm uh, I'm into uh, systematic things and uh, i can also remember numbers very easily <laughs> so i like numbers and uh we were Robert and I were thinking about what could be a title, and I made some lame suggestions, and then we thought maybe it should just be a random number, and we went to this random number generator. <laughs> 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 and the, actually, the first results, uh, the first result was nine one one nine six three. Am I correct? Yeah, five six three. That's the story behind it. It's a random title and uh, that is because I don't think album titles are... Well, it's important that the album has a title but what it says is not important in particular in my case, it's not important.